0: check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the giant of online dating match group. Now, even if you found love the old-fashioned way, you're likely familiar with the match brands like Tinder and Hinge, amongst many others. To break down Match, I'm joined by George Hadja, founder of Bristle Moon Capital. And on Business Breakdowns, we typically try to focus 90% plus of the conversation on the business itself. We'll ask guests about valuation framework for a business, but we try to avoid stock-specific conversations. In this case, Match is a battleground stock, and it was a great opportunity to expand the concept of business breakdowns or evolve the concept of business breakdowns and start to incorporate more discussion on why the stock went from this tech darling to quite hated. So George gets into that. He goes through a background on this industry, what made Match who it is today, and what are all the key debates that are driving this stock and all the commentary around it. And if you find yourself interested in learning even more, make sure to check out George's profile, which we will link in the show notes. He has written an in-depth research report on Match Group that goes well beyond what we discuss in this conversation. So you can find that, again, through a link in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. All right, George, Match is one of the most polarizing stocks that we have ever covered on Business Breakdowns. And we don't even try to typically talk about the stock, but I think it's important to set the table with that in mind. And given you've written a research report that's public very recently about Match, I just want to get your reaction to the investor debate over this name and what you've experienced since releasing that report.
1: Yeah, it's really a battleground stock. And one thing that jumped out from a number of conversations that flowed on from that report that I released was that people who are new to the stock, there was a tendency for them to have preconceived notions about dating apps and matches business. And so I think consumer-facing businesses lend themselves to people forming very strong views based on their personal experience where N equals one or based on other anecdotes I was guilty of this myself when I started looking at the business. I initially thought dating apps aren't good businesses because the churn, the lack of customer alignment. It's difficult to shape those preconceived notions and look at a stock with a totally blank slate when you're familiar with the business and product. I think one of the big takeaways for me after writing that report was that I came to appreciate that these dating apps become much more like utilities where their function is to provide a matching mechanism which is more enduring than say providing entertainment and being more the mercy of the often changing preferences of the consumer so while we don't believe that dating apps are the best businesses in the world, not by a long shot, we simply believe that they're not as bad as everyone else thinks they are.
0: That's a really good launching point, and I like the framing there in terms of utility. It's something I hadn't thought of and Personally, I'm an N of zero here with these dating apps. So something that I've always been intrigued from the outside. Maybe we start with just an overview of this market. It's not new. It's been around since the internet and Match was an OG in the market. But maybe you can bring us up to speed just in terms of where we are in terms of online dating, whether it's adoption, penetration across the globe in the US, elsewhere, whatever you think the key metrics are.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about the dynamics of dating that existed before the internet to really appreciate some of the impacts from online dating. And so the process of finding someone to go on a date with was bound by the need for physical proximity. And because of that, dating interactions were typically hyperlocal. And there's this great study from the 1930s, which examines the addresses found on 5,000 Philadelphia marriage licenses. And the conclusions from that Well, that one-sixth of the couples lived within one block of one another, one-third lived within five blocks, and half lived within 20 blocks of one another. And now when online dating emerged in 1995 with web-based match.com, it's founded by two guys, Gary Kremen and Peng Ong, but it came along and it dissolved that requirement for physical proximity. And for the first time ever, people could search for significant others From the comfort of their own homes and it obviated the need to go out to bars where rejection by someone was direct it was immediate it was received in a more visceral way so if you contrast that with rejection in the sphere of online dating it's silent it's unfelt and so online dating basically made it easier to get a date and it unlocked this massive pool of dating candidates by tapping into the scale of the internet It also allowed searches to be filtered based on selected criteria. So if you think about an app like Hinge, you can get fairly granular in your ability to screen the profiles that are shown to you. You could filter so that you only see people within a 10-mile radius who are, let's say, Hispanic, Christian, non-drinkers. So it's certainly a contrast to going out in the real world, hoping for a chance encounter with someone who aligns with your values. Now, in terms of the key players in the online dating market match group is the largest in the category. They're a holding company. They own over 45 online dating assets. Their brands include dating apps like Tinder, Hinge, the league that plenty of fish. Okay. many others. So they're roughly a 10 and a half billion market cap company, and they'll do call it 3.4 billion in revenue this year. Now the two other listed players are Bumble and Grindr. Both of which are much smaller. So, Bumbles, they do around a billion top line. They're a $3 billion market cap business. Grind is doing around 200 million top line, and they're a billion market cap. And then, after these larger players, you have a very, very long tail of subscale apps. There are over a thousand different dating apps that tap into various niches. And many of those smaller apps struggle to monetize because of their lack of scale. So, in terms of Where we're at with online dating adoption, if you were to look across all dating apps globally on a bottoms-up basis, there are an estimated 250 million MAUs. And Match has said in the past that their addressable market, excluding China, is the 700 million connected singles aged 18 to 65 that exist out there. So that implies roughly a little more than a third online dating app penetration Of those people that could be using the apps. And if we look at all US singles, only half of them have ever used a dating product. So there's this bare narrative that Tinder has tapped out on growth, it's saturated the market, and future user growth is going to be harder to come by. When you observe some of those penetration rates, that data is incongruent with the narrative that the online dating market is saturated. Um, So even in the US, you've had their competitor, Bumble, speaking about U.S. dating activity being concentrated more in the coastal cities. And there's still a lot of room in these Tier 3, Tier 2 cities in the U.S. where awareness and penetration for dating apps is still relatively low. And so we believe that there's still room for user growth within the U.S. And when you look internationally, it becomes pretty clear that there's still a healthy level of user growth potential. If you were to look at somewhere like APAC, In that region, dating market penetration is much lower. It's roughly one-fifth online dating market penetration. So that's for the online dating market more broadly. When you drill in on Tinder specifically, 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds in North America have never used Tinder, and only a quarter of them are active Tinder users. And when you look globally, the picture is even more stark around user growth and that opportunity So globally, three quarters of 18 to 34-year-olds have never used Tinder, and only 10% of that cohort are active users. The data suggests that there's still a decent runway to grow Tinder payers, both in North America and internationally. And one interesting fact is that the Gen Z cohort is a growing portion of Tinder's user base. And so that's positive to the extent that these younger generations, they're more comfortable meeting people online, and that stigma around online dating that existed for older generations. It's basically non-existent for the Gen Z demographic. So you're likely to have a nice structural increase in the online dating penetration
0: rate as more of those younger singles filter into the apps. You mentioned a lot of different brands there, Tinder, Hinge, Bumble. Can you just compare and contrast a bit between what differentiates these brands? Is it typically a key feature And when you reference something like Tinder and that opportunity set to capture more and more of the market, what makes it such that everyone is a potential candidate to be on Tinder versus just selecting another smaller app that's more suited for them?
1: Dating apps stratify across three areas. You've got the level of dating intent, you've got user demographics, and then just user interests. So if you think about the larger apps such as Tinder, Hinge, Bumble. They're the big three, which have the most user liquidity. But they differentiate themselves based on the level of dating intent. So if you think about Tinder, it's much more casual in nature. And that app, they do have somewhat of a negative reputation around being a hookup app. And so they've actually launched a marketing campaign earlier this year and it's really trying to move away from that and reclaim the narrative around Tinder. If they don't do that, it potentially alienates some users who go to the app, they're looking for relationships, and they encounter maybe negative behavior from other users who are looking for more short-term casual interactions. And if you contrast that with Hinge, historically, Match Group, they've tried to differentiate Hinge via dating intent. So the users that go to that app, they have more intent to form relationships And that's really encapsulated in the tagline, which is, quote, designed to be deleted. And you can also see that in the user experience in terms of how long it takes to onboard a new user. Now, there's a lot more care and curation that it takes to build a profile for a more relationship-focused app like Hinge. So if you think about Tinder, it takes roughly three to four minutes to create a user profile, whereas for Hinge, on average, it's 15 to 20 minutes. So there is a bit more effort involved from the perspective of a Hinge user in that onboarding process. And rather than swiping on Hinge, you actually have to respond to specific prompts. And so the aim with that is really to slow things down, make the matches more deliberate, rather than just quickly swiping through all these profiles based on physical attributes. And so if you think about the long tail of apps a lot of them really start to tap into specific niches. And if you think about the ways that they can differentiate, it could be to better serve various ethnic groups or religions. For example, you take a look at BLK, that caters to the black community. You have CHISPA, that's catering towards Hispanic people. Those are both owned by Match. There's also JDate, which is a dating app for Jewish people. And so... There's many apps for people of different demographic groups. When you consider the apps that tap into specific interests, you see the landscape really broaden. For example, there's a fairly salacious app called Thrinder. And that's for people who are looking for threesomes. But the name was actually too close to Tinder. So they ended up getting sued by Tinder and had to subsequently change the name It gets even weirder if you think about the really long tail and just how niche it gets. And so this is maybe a bit of a rogue example, but there are literally dating apps out there for people with specific STDs to connect. So any niche that you can think of, there is probably a dating app out there serving that
0: niche. I was going to go with the more innocent example of the farmer's dating app, but the STD dating app (laughs) also fits the bill. When you think about Match aggregating many of these different brands, what is the strategy there and why is it not a winner-take-all market when it is a marketplace? I think you gave some allusion to why there, but why did Match specifically see the benefit in having this diversified strategy of different brands?
1: Part of diversified strategy of having dozens of brands in the Match stable It's a hangover from those apps being either incubated or acquired by ISC. And if you think about all those separate brands, that works because you don't have one app that can appeal to everyone. If we think about these dating apps, they're network businesses. And what we've seen play out in the dating category is it's a winner takes most market. And so Tinder is the largest of all dating apps. They're the most profitable dating app in the world. And I think a big part of that success was it was a first mover in the mobile online dating app category. And they were really good at capitalizing on that novelty and excitement around the space that existed in the early days. And what flowed on from that was that a large portion of Tinder's historical user acquisition, it's been word of mouth. They got the network to a level of critical mass and They had unbelievable viral growth because dating apps were new and exciting. And to contextualize some of that growth, Tinder, they used to report subscriber numbers. At the beginning of 2015, they had 300,000 subscribers. And within a span of six years, they 23x'd that subscriber base. So they hit almost 7 million subs at the beginning of 2021. and they achieved a lot of that explosive growth with very minimal spend on marketing. And if you think about some of the history of how they scaled up, they really took a grassroots approach to scaling the network. They'd go around to college campuses and recruit users. And the newness and novelty of this mobile dating app concept, because it was new, it resonated with users. And that value proposition was fairly compelling. So if you think about it, You're in college and that guy or girl in your class that you had a crush on, they might be on the app. So you download it, you'd see what all the hype was about, and they built out this network from those college clusters. And so that's really difficult to do today. You can give someone who's really smart some capital and they can build a great dating app. But if they were to try to replicate that college recruiting push that Tinder used in its infancy, it's just going to be extremely difficult. You'd get in front of the students, you'd explain you've got a new app, and their response would almost guarantee to be, well, why would we download that? You can just go to Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, one of the other hundreds of niche dating apps out there. And so I think it's easy to forget the very unique circumstances that allow Tinder to scale. And you basically can't replicate those circumstances today. And the only chance of getting any traction, you need a differentiated value proposition. And so you need to be targeting some sort of niche. And that's what we've seen play out with some of those examples that I mentioned before. But the problem with niche markets is that by definition, they're a subset of the entire market and they're smaller in nature. And so to the extent that any of these niche apps harbor ambitions to broaden their appeal, to compete more directly with Tinder, they confront a real problem. And that problem is that by expanding beyond their initial niche, you risk alienating that user base who came to your app specifically for that niche. And so, in that way, the dating market has been stitched up already. There's, in our view, a low chance of a left of field app coming to the market and being able to achieve the level of user liquidity that could threaten Tinder. Now, that's not to say that it can't happen. Consumer preferences are fickle, they're difficult to predict. But it's more difficult to start one of these apps than many appreciate. And one other point I'd make is that there's delayed monetization that you typically see with dating apps, and it creates a high initial cash burn for new apps, which makes it even more difficult when you consider that the new apps today, they don't benefit from the virality that Tinder did in the early days. And so if you think about Tinder, they launched in 2012. They didn't start monetizing until Q1 of 2015. And if you think about Hinge, they launched their mobile app at the beginning of 2013. They didn't start monetizing until 2016. So that's three years of no revenue. And that's against an uncertain prospect of getting any revenue at all, unless you're able to achieve sufficient user liquidity because you really can't start charging people until the app scales to a point where they get enough value from it. So that's a pretty awful business to try and start from scratch. And I think a lot of public market investors are often exposed to network businesses well after they've reached critical mass and that flywheel spinning. And so I think many people fail to appreciate how difficult it is to get scale for a dating app.
0: I want to talk through monetization on these apps. You brought up a very interesting point here in terms of the process for building one of these businesses and going through that initial pain of not monetizing. Once you do get to the period of monetization, how much differentiation is there between the apps in terms of cost and how they're monetizing? And maybe just starting very simple. How are you charging customers? Is it usage-based? Is it monthly-based? Just walk through the revenue model for these apps? The majority of dating apps follow a
1: freemium model, and that includes Tinder and Hinge. And so it's possible to get on an app and use it for free. But those free users, they typically have their experience hindered by limits on things like the number of profiles they can interact with. There's other curtailments basically designed to push someone who's a free user to upgrade to paid. And once a user does transition from free to paid, There's two key ways that dating apps generate revenue from users. So the first is subscriptions. The second is a la carte purchases. And if you're a user and you are reaching into your wallet to pay for one of those subscriptions or a la carte purchase, you're trying to garner some sort of advantage to get more or better quality matches. In terms of that split for match groups specifically, the company last disclosed, I believe it was two years ago, that Subscriptions comprise around 70% of direct revenues. A la carte forms the remaining 30%. If you think about what you get, if you were to pay for a subscription, you get access to a bunch of different features. It could include unlimited likes, no ads, the ability to what they call passport to another location so you can swipe on people in other cities. And for an app like Tinder, they've got three subscription tiers. There's Tinder Plus, Tinder Gold, Tinder Platinum, Well, they're the core ones. They've actually introduced a new one called Tinder Select. And then if we think about the a la carte purchases, they basically unbundle some of these subscription packages and allow users to purchase additional units or features like super likes, boosts. And those terms might sound arcane to people that haven't used the apps. Super like is basically something that you send to another user and it helps your profile stand out and depends what location you're in. But they cost around $3 each. A boost basically allows your profile to be seen by more people. And they're 6 to $8 each.
0: And again, varies by geographic region. So when you think about this business, is ARPU the right metric to use here? And is there massive differentiation between the average user and the top tier user? Is there a substantial amount of business that's coming from the top 20%? Are those the type of things that play into the model here? ARPU is definitely a key part of the revenue buildup. I'd say
1: you can think of revenue as the number of users on that app, the number of those users that convert to payers, and then how much revenue you can get from each payer. And I think one of the reasons why the bear narrative has been able to get traction is because Match doesn't report total users or churn rates we only know the number of payers and the revenue per payer. So there is an incomplete picture in terms of trying to gauge the health of the ecosystem for a key app such as Tinder. In terms of the distribution of payers, they don't disclose that. It's obviously a key opportunity and it does dovetail well with Bernard Kim, who's the CEO, his experience in background in video games. So he was at Zynga for six years and he was at EA for nearly a decade. But If you think about mobile gaming, it's all about monetizing those power users or whales as they call them. And so what Tinder has recently done is introduced a super premium tier called Tinder Select, and that's at $500 a month, which is 33 times the monthly average revenue per payer of Tinder. So it's an enormous step up, and it's trying to tap into those power users If you think about that potential, there's probably no better place to observe power law dynamics than the Apple App Store. They don't disclose those spend distributions, but we can gauge some of that data because in the Epic Games and Apple lawsuit, in materials furnished with a court, there was buried in that a disclosure around the distribution of revenues for Apple's App Store. And it was for Q3 of 2017. And it's pure gold. So from this, you can gather that 0.5% of people generated 54% of total App Store spend. Now, that's truly astonishing. And 8% of users generated 95% of all App Store billings. And so we believe that there's a really big opportunity here if Match Group can tap into some of those power users that exist in their cohort. And that's what Tinder Select's trying to do. It's only available to the 1% of
0: Tinder's most active users. You touched on this a bit before in terms of Tinder having this reputation for being the hookup app. And in some ways, if I step back, I think that actually might be a good thing for the business model, because it means that people aren't going to find a relationship which might result in them dropping the app and churning, and they might actually stick with it. So when you think about the super users... Is it more people in that hookup category? And is there any way to think about the retention rate for the users? I know they don't disclose it, but just for your own framework, how do you approach that?
1: There's a bit of a conundrum with the apps whereby to the extent that two people meet on an app and they get into a relationship, you don't just lose one user, you lose two. And if you think about an app like Hinge, where... Tagline designed to be deleted, it runs counter to what shareholders would desire in terms of maximizing user retention. And so I think there is definitely a lack of alignment between match and the customer from an economic standpoint. And to your question with Tinder and those users who are on the apps more for hookups, yeah, I'd say that economically, those are more valuable users because they've got a greater LTV that tail isn't getting cut off if they were to prematurely get into a relationship after being on the app for a week, for example. I think that that lack of customer alignment is definitely something that puts people off. You know, that's not to say that every person on the app is looking for a relationship. There are certainly, as you mentioned, people looking for, for more casual relationships or hookups on those apps. And Tinder is something that is definitely more leaned into that One other point I've noticed is that there's actually an indirect benefit to user replenishment when people meet on an app and then subsequently get into a relationship or get married. And so that couple will inevitably get the pesky question, oh, how did you guys meet? And to the extent that they're honest and say Tinder or Hinge, then they basically become lifetime product evangelists. And that can spark curiosity in others to give the app a try. In terms of churn. The company does not report that. It is definitely a sticking point for a lot of investors. What you can do is you can look elsewhere to gauge what churn rates might be for Match Group. And there's this company called Metic that Match acquired, and they used to be listed on the French exchange. And it was a long time ago, it was in 2008, but in a few earnings releases, they mentioned monthly churn was in a 12 to 15% range. That's really high. It probably sounds terrifying to investors that are accustomed to best-in-class consumer subscription app churn rates being in the 2 to 5% range. Even just mathematically, if you think about an initial cohort of 100 users, you apply that 15% monthly churn and roll it forward 12 months, you'll have just 14 users left at the end of the year. So you've churned through 86% of users. But that's actually misleading, and that's not how it works in reality because with dating apps, those churn rates are simply indicative of the way that people date, getting in and out of relationships and subsequently deleting and re-downloading Tinder. So reactivations are a prime source of replenishing the top of the funnel. So in our view, churn isn't a worry on the condition that you have a very low cost of user acquisition. And so churn has historically been a non-issue for the group due to the massive net user additions that they've benefited from this viral growth that's required next to no marketing spend. And the problem is that as the app matures, it potentially becomes more difficult, maybe more expensive to attract incremental users to the app. And given the very high churn rates, you very much do not want to see increases in your customer acquisition cost, as it could potentially upend the unit economics of match. And the implication of that, if it did occur, would be that the company was over-earning historically To be clear, we have not yet seen any evidence of this. Match disclosed in its last 10K that they'd actually seen a decline in the average amount they spend to acquire a new user across their portfolio.
0: I want to start on the top line. It seems like that's the best visibility you have in terms of what's going on. And you might not be able to separate churn from additions and exactly what's going on, but you get some sense of how the business is performing. What has that looked like over the past one to two years? I know we had a weird environment with COVID, but what has happened to growth rates? And do you have any context for what's going on just in terms of balancing those net ads versus any type of churn? The
1: business has historically grown at pretty high rates. If you look, I think over the last five years, Tinder has grown at 40% on average, but that has decelerated pretty dramatically and growth was just 9% last year, I think that's what really upset the market. The stock experienced a more than 80% peak to trough drawdown, which is an almost value destruction because people were underwriting Match Group as a whole to be a
0: 20% grower. Make for an ugly market environment, and the stock would reflect that. When you think about that in terms of the decelerated growth rate and what you brought up before, in terms of marketing spend or lack thereof historically, what does this business do on a margin basis? Or how do you look at unit economics? What's the best way to think about, whether it's a normalized earnings profile or normalized margin, what's the best way to think about it for this business? So there are some really good bull and bear debates
1: around Match Group, but one thing is irrefutable. So this is a highly profitable, highly cash-generative business. So if you were to make some adjustments to the company to find operating earnings, you'd include share-based comp, depreciation, Match produced almost 900 million of operating income last year. That equates to a 28 percent operating margin. And historically, a very high portion, North of 90 percent of that, EBITA has converted to free cash flow. So they were doing 800 million of free cash flow last year and. For every dollar in revenue that match produced, a quarter of that converted to free cash flow, which is really solid. The business is extremely capital light. Now, if you look over the last decade, they've spent cumulatively a little under 400 million in capex. And to give a bit of context around that, that cumulative capex over the last decade, that's equal to just 12% of last year's revenue base. So the business requires minimal investment from both the cash flow statement and the P&L to fund its growth. And the corollary of that is that reinvestment opportunities are insufficient to absorb all the earnings that Match is generating. And so you're going to see buybacks become a more important part of the growth algorithm for Match Group going forward. And it is important to note that historically, that was not always the case. The company, they suspended... Their buyback program after they spun off from IAC. So, Match had to delever from 4.6 times net leverage to around 2.8 times where they are today in terms of their leverage. And so, right now, the company, they've got a $1 billion share repurchase authorization and they're steadily working that down. And the CFO, Gary Swidler, he has spoken about Match's intention to return at least half of the free cash flow generated by the company over the next few years back to shareholders in the form of buybacks. And it was at a recent investor conference, he noted that Match has done 300 million in buybacks in Q3 quarter to date. So that's around two and a half percent of Match's current market cap in one quarter. So buybacks, in our view, are going to form an increasingly important
0: part of that value generation equation for Match as we move forward. I want to talk a little bit more on capital allocation there. But just in terms of the margin profile, what has been the historical marketing expense as a percentage of revenue? Has that been a normalized number over time? And is there a risk that that would have to take a material step up if growth is to slow down? If you look at sales and marketing expense, and it's worth
1: noting that advertising expense comprises around 90% of that line item... But that has been an enormous source of margin expansion for the business. There's been 21 percentage points of sales and marketing margin release over the last eight years. It's gone from 38% in 2014 down to around 16 17% today. There is a risk and we believe that they will need to spend more against their assets. And that's because we think that they've dropped the ball a bit on the marketing front over the last few years particularly relative to an app like Bumble. And so one of the issues that was observed throughout the pandemic was that many of the customer acquisition channels that Match had historically used, particularly college recruiting, they disappeared overnight. And so you had Bumble, for example, as a point of contrast. They really pivoted their customer acquisition channels to out-of-home advertising, sponsorships, display advertising, all these areas essentially where dating apps had historically not been very involved. And I think that's really showing up in the fact that Bumble's namesake app over the last three years has more than doubled its total paying users. Whereas Tinder, they've only increased their paying user base by 30% over the same period. But Tinder has also been clocking year over year declines for the last three consecutive quarters too. And so there's important top of funnel implications to the extent that Tinder underinvested over the last few years, particularly in terms of trying to be that initial dating app touch point for that 18 to 20-year-old cohort. There's the risk that potentially the lackadaisical marketing efforts from Tinder over the past few years are being felt on a lagged basis. And this is what's contributing to some of the new user and payer weakness that we're seeing today. And the way to remedy that is to spend more on marketing. And so, yes, we think that there will be a step up in marketing, but also not to a level that will totally tank the margins. And if you think about match a stock price, we believe that a lot of that negativity is being reflected
0: already today at current prices. When you look at Bumble, obviously, the marketing budget has gone up, but some of that has been offset by revenue. What is their percentage of revenue that's spent on advertising? Is it materially different than Match? It is higher.
1: If you think about Match's sales and marketing, it's around 16 to 17% currently. Bumble's at 27% sales and marketing margin. And again, advertising is a big portion of that for them as well. But that doesn't account for the scale difference. Bumble is only, call it 28% of the revenue size of Match. And so Bumble's spending around 200 million per year on advertising, while Match spends closer to 500 million. So there's almost a two and a half X delta in terms of advertising spend dollars between those two
0: groups. I should have asked this earlier, but are users typically using multiple apps? Is there any form of loyalty when it comes to customers and their specific dating apps when you're thinking about the bigger brands?
1: No, they do use multiple apps, particularly younger generations. They use even more apps than some of these older cohorts. And if I can remember correctly, it's around four apps on average that the Gen Z user is using for dating
0: purposes. Do the apps compete at all on price or on promotion? When you think about where the market is going, it seems like Tinder has been introducing all these premium monetization features. But just in terms of the... Base experience once you move away from freemium. Has that changed at all in terms of pricing? And is there any type of war going on when it comes to competition and pricing?
1: No. So I think the benefit of the oligopolistic nature of this market is that there certainly is not price competition. In fact, it's the opposite. You've seen all these players steadily increasing their revenue per payer. One thing to point out is that Tinder is putting through some pretty hefty price increases for its subscriptions in the US. And this is after a period where prices arguably hadn't been properly optimized. They're really playing a bit of catch up on pricing for Tinder. And we believe that there's actually latent pricing power for that asset. And the reason why they're able to exercise that is they have the user liquidity, they have the scale. No one else has the same level of scale. And that's a pretty good setup given the high incremental margins on pricing-led revenue dollars you usually see. And so to frame some of the price differential for Match against their biggest competitor, which is Bumble, Bumble in Q2 had average revenue per paying user of $28 per month. And that was 87% higher than Tinder's revenue per payer of $15 a month. And while the products are different, in terms of dating intent, and there are demographic and geographic mixed differences that explain some of that delta, that gap does bode well for Tinder's ability to get traction with the price increases they're currently putting through. Those price increases as well are a huge reason why there's payer churn occurring. and The company has even said that they expect Q3 sequential payer additions to be positive absent those US price increases. So there's probably some initial sticker shock. If you think about the Tinder Gold subscription tier, that's seen monthly prices increase 60% since the beginning of the year. For the introductory Tinder Plus tier, prices are up more than threefold from $8 a month to $25 a month. So you can probably imagine that users are pretty unhappy about that, and those price increases, and some portion of the user base would cancel their subscription once they hit those price increases. What we do find encouraging is that many of those paying users that do churn out due to the higher prices, they remain in the ecosystem. They're generally remaining active on the platform, and there's still that opportunity to reactivate those users and have them return as payers at some point down the track.
0: Am I right to think about the number you mentioned before, about 9% top-line growth, comparing that to these massive price increases, that there is some churn going on in the payer group for sure, and that the majority of revenue growth is coming from price increases?
1: Yes, correct. Now, those price increases are for Tinder specifically, which is, call it 55% of total revenue. It's probably worth pointing out that Tinder is a really, really important asset to Match Group. So it's a little more than half the revenue, but because it's a scaled asset, in the past, the management team has said it's a 50% EBITDA margin asset. So if you do some back of the envelope math, that equates to around 75 80% of Match's total earnings coming from Tinder alone. And so those price increases are specifically for the US Tinder users and around 50% of the US payer base has now moved up and are paying those higher prices. They're kind of feathering in those price increases. But yes, the magnitude of those price increases, for any business, you'd see some level of elasticity response. And so what you've seen is that Tinder payers are declining, and they declined by 4% in the latest quarter. But that's
0: what you'd expect when you're putting through that level of price increase. Yeah, it is when you think about this business and the economic curves associated with pricing properly and the different tiers is one that certainly stands out and having to think about the trade-offs there. I want to go back to capital allocation. And you mentioned it's a business that generates free cash flow. Historically, they've used some of that free cash flow to buy back shares, which is interesting for a business that's growing as rapidly as it has grown over time, to be buying back shares in a period of that massive growth. I have some questions in terms of, are there opportunities to actually invest in growth? And I know they've made some acquisitions over time. So how much is that going to play into the DNA moving forward as well?
1: Funnily enough, Match actually tried to acquire Bumble back in 2017 for almost half a billion dollars, but the offer was rejected. If you think about today the regulatory apparatus in the US is particularly hawkish, would likely take a dim view towards Match trying to acquire Bumble. In terms of other acquisitions, I'd say there are less opportunities to acquire companies and particularly ones that will move the needle given how big Match has become relative to all the other dating assets out there. But in terms of the ability to allocate capital to new apps, if you look at Match historically, they have been acquiring apps and not so much organically starting new apps. Now, what's really encouraging is recently they rolled out a new app called Archer, which caters to gay and bi men. And it's a competitor to Grinder, which is the listed competitor, which is an app for gay men as well serving that community. And so I think that's really positive to the extent that they've started one of these new businesses to tap into that market, which is potentially a really attractive market. And what we've heard so far from the company is positive. They've rolled it out in New York and LA. And the user response was so positive that they're actually accelerating that rollout. So it's very early days. It's a tiny asset at the moment. But if you roll it forward three, five years, that could potentially become a
0: decent contributor to revenue and earnings for Match Group maybe we can talk about management a bit because they were under the IAC umbrella. They have since spun off and IAC spinoffs don't have the best track records in the market. And we can come up with various reasons as to why, but one thing that stands out is the changes in the management team here. So talk a little bit about the new management team. What gets you comfortable with their strategy and how they're different from the previous regimes?
1: There was a lot of management turnover at Match Group. I think if you were to look at the history since 2017, for example, they've had four CEOs. Tinder has had five CEOs. They had a period where they didn't have a CMO. They didn't have a chief product officer. That has led to a lot of internal chaos, which I think has contributed to some of the issues they're facing Bernard Kim, the new CEO, he's been at the helm since May of last year, and I think he's doing all the right things. He's brought a level of stability to the management ranks. He's got the right background to extract more value from Match's power users. He's spending money on marketing in ways which are getting traction. So if you look at the top of funnel trends after Tinder started their marketing campaign, which they've called, It Starts With a Swipe, Since that, every single month, you've had an improving trajectory in Tinder daily new users. So that's really positive. And I think if you were to look at Match Group historically, the level of product innovation has been lackluster in recent years. There really hasn't been that much that's come out from the group. And following a period where BK was finding his stride, he's now at a point where he's introducing new apps like Archer He's introduced weekly subscriptions, which is really interesting because the company's taking this barbell approach, which I think makes a ton of sense. So on the lower end, they've introduced weekly subscription packages, which are a lower sticker price, which really helps get some of those Gen Z younger users convert to become payers. It's more digestible for them to come on at these lower prices of a weekly tier as opposed to the greater financial outlay needed for monthly or a yearly subscription. So that's great. And it's leading to a massive uptick in payer conversion rates. So the company gave some data around this with UK female users and particularly younger users. They saw a more than 70% uplift in payer conversion after that weekly subscription tier was released. So that's really good news on the lower end. And then on the higher end, you have what they're doing with the super premium tier, and the potential there is quite meaningful by our numbers. If Tinder Select can tap into just 0.1 percent of Tinder's 10 and a half million payers and convert the call it 10 and a thousand power users to that super premium tier, then that could yield an additional 30 million in revenues. And there's a very high pull-through on that because it's just pricing. So you could be seeing 90, 95% plus incremental margins. And when you flow that through, it could equate to a 3% boost to the earnings power of match just from that new tier that extracts more value from the 0.1% of Tinder's
0: user base. I know another potential catalyst for any app-based business is if anything were to ever happen to the Apple App Store fee and that 30% take rate that they have there. Is that something that just flows through the business right now? Is there anything else to it besides it being a massive tax on the business? How do you think about that? And do you have any context for how you would actually think about that ever-changing in the market or them ever being able to find ways around that 30% tax? Would love to hear about that.
1: Match's mobile apps are subject to the 30% app store fee. And this has had a noticeable impact on their financials historically. So if you look at the last eight years, Match Group more than 3 x its revenue base. But at the same time, they saw their gross margin compressed by almost 17 percentage points. So it went from an almost 87% margin in 2014 down to 70% in 2022. Now, that is... Very much not how a scaling internet business's gross margin progression is supposed to look like. A big part of that gross margin compression is a mix shift away from web-based dating portals towards mobile dating app properties, given just such extraordinary growth from Tinder, which is mobile-based. So from that, we can gauge that over the past six years where we have the data, Match has paid out $0. $0.25 cents on average to app stores for every incremental dollar of revenue. So that's been part of the gross margin decline. Now we see there being potential for reductions in what Match has to pay to the app stores. There's been a lot of movement on this front in recent years and Match has been involved directly in pursuing antitrust actions against Apple and Google. And so the two ongoing developments with the greatest potential for seeing these app store fees be lowered One, the passing of the Digital Markets Act in the EU late last year, and two, the Google Play Store antitrust trial. So if you think about the EU's DMA, Apple and Google fall within the ambit of that legislation requires them to basically not block sideloading. They can't force developers to use their own services, such as payment systems. There are pretty severe penalties for non-compliance. That finds scale up to 10% of global turnover. So, Apple and Google have until March of next year to become compliant. So, we think that that's potentially a catalyst which could lead to fee relief for match in the EU at some point over the next few quarters. And it's probably only a small chance, but there is still a possibility that that legislation could catalyze broader App Store fee relief if a unified global policy on fees is adopted rather than, say, a, a piecemeal approach of only changing. Your fee structure in the EU. And then you've got the Google Play Store antitrust case being led by Match and Epic Games. So that goes to jury trial in November, and that could be another catalyst for App Store relief. In terms of how consequential it could be for Match, it has potentially a very significant impact. We estimate that Match paid around $650 million in App Store fees last year, and that equates to around 20% of their revenues and 68% of their COGS. And given that Google has already cut their fee rate for the first year of a subscription to 15%, basically leaves, call it 585 million of App Store fees that are most vulnerable to fee relief. Let's just say that there's a scenario where App Store fees dropped from 30% to 15%. That would be an almost nine percentage point margin boost to the current year EBITDA. Now, you wouldn't want to rest an entire investment thesis on in-app purchase fee relief being granted, but it really is a nice kicker to the equity if it does come through, given that that cost elimination falls entirely through to the bottom line. In those sorts of asymmetric upside boosts, you can think of them like a call option, and they can really be the icing on the cake for investment opportunities. sell side's often reluctant to give credit to them because they're very hard to estimate and handicap the odds of it coming through. So if it did happen, you'd see a a swap of EPS upgrades and the stock would likely re-rate as a result.
0: Yeah. My compliance team in my sell-side days would never allow that to be included in any forecast. But having that as a upside risk, the rare form of upside risk certainly makes a lot of sense. So when you step back and you just look at it from the 10,000-foot view, just walk me through how you view the business today in terms of where it's trading, whatever multiple you want to use, and the forward outlook, whatever you think is a reasonable expectation for where this can go over the next one to two years.
1: Yeah. So a good starting point to think about the value equation is the fact that Match currently trades on an 8% free cash flow yield. And 12 times forward earnings. We like to think about where free cash flow per share might be in five years' time and what the market might be willing to capitalize that at. And so the way that we think about it is to segment Tinder and Hinge, and you can think about the rest of the assets. Break each of those down into the number of payers and then the revenue per payer to get your revenue build up. And so let's just be conservative and say that Tinder never grows its payer base ever again. And it just stays flat. But they can increase their revenue per paying user so that that asset grows 7%. Again, worth noting that Tinder in the past, on average, over the last five years, has grown at 40%. So that marks a big deceleration. You're effectively assuming that Tinder is permanently a single digit grower. When you look at Hinge, that's really the star of the portfolio. So it's growing top line at a mid 30s percent rate over the next couple of years, that's actually accelerating right now. If you look at their $400 revenue guide for this year, it implies a north of 50% Q4 exit rate for their growth. That's a really great trajectory. So maybe if you assume mid-30s and your forecast horizon, it's, again, conservative given that they're currently accelerating beyond that and they've got a huge geographic expansion opportunity ahead. And so when you tie that together, Match could be generating a bit under $5 billion in revenue in 2027, which is a high single-digit CAGR. Again, a big slowdown from the 20% average growth that Match has achieved for the last five years. And so there should be potential for some margin expansion, given that hinges starting to hit scale and will become less of a drag on group margins. And then you also have significant operating leverage in this business particularly as a lot of the growth is pricing led with not a lot of costs attached to those incremental revenue dollars. So it's possible that they hit around $1.7 billion of EBITDA out in 2027. And north of 90% of that could convert to free cash flow, which gets you a little over $1.5 billion in free cash flow. So there's also the buyback equation. And you also have to consider the offset to that being The share based comp dilution. But maybe you can buy back a low single digit percentage of the shares outstanding each year, assuming that the earnings multiple doesn't totally blow out. So that gets you around $6 of free cash flow in 2027, which is above some of the street numbers. But if you capitalize that at 12 times, then you can back into a 14% IRR over that period on a set of assumptions which aren't particularly demanding. Now, if you throw a little more at it by way of growth assumptions and then layer on a scenario where fee relief is granted, then that five-year IRR starts pushing up into the high 20s percent. We view this as a fairly asymmetric opportunity.
0: That was incredibly helpful and straightforward framework. So I appreciate that answer and the level of detail there. When you think about the risks associated with that, I think some are obvious, but what are the key risks that stand out to you? And maybe compare that to what you hear from the investor base in terms of the main risks that they see as well. I would say a big risk is around
1: some of those unit economics that we discussed. And if Match does need to materially step up what they're spending on marketing, then that's problematic. And The management team has tacitly admitted that they've underspent on marketing. They've said that they've been less active than their peers from a marketing perspective for several years. That's pretty well flagged. People understand that. And I think it is being reflected in the price. Something that is a risk that is perhaps not being discussed as much, and it's much, much harder to underwrite, is some of the change that could occur as we move into the next form factor of computing, which is looking like AR, VR, and what that could mean in terms of the online dating category. I think it pays to be paranoid, especially when it comes to technological change. And we're already seeing AI being used in online dating in ways that potentially alter user behavior. So for starters, there are AI chatbots. There's an app called Riz, which helps users come up with opening lines and responses to matches. And so these utilizations of AI run counter to the authenticity that many users, particularly that Gen Z cohort, are looking for. So arguably a negative for the health of the platform if it would have become more commonplace. And I think if you get really imaginative about the future of what AI holds for dating, admittedly, this ventures into the realm of science fiction, but there's potentially a world where AI girlfriends become more commonplace. There are versions of this concept already via apps such as Blush or Romantic AI. And it sounds totally far-fetched and I sound stupid saying it, but if you think about these risks, what if there's a world where you have compelling AI-generated dialogue and you combine that with photorealistic codec avatars rendered in VR with someone with whatever physical traits you desire then maybe there's a certain portion of the market that seek that AI companionship and then maybe either cease to use matches apps or don't use them as readily. So that is a risk.
0: As you mentioned, as ridiculous as it can sound, I understand that it has to at least be acknowledged as a risk, especially with the advancements that AI has had in the social category, which I think truly stands out and lives up to all of the hype that that has been mentioned. When I think about competition outside of the names that we've referenced so far, there are the 8,000 pound gorillas in the room, like a Facebook. How do you think about Facebook in regards to competition and any other threats that you think could exist in terms of going after matches business, Tinder's business, any of the match group names business?
1: Competition, as it relates to the dating app category, before getting to Facebook, there are very few scaled dating apps. And while these apps don't disclose users, Tinder has 10.5 million payers and Match Group overall has a little over 15.5 million payers. If you compare that to the next biggest competitor, the Bumble app has 2.5 million payers. So the next scaled dating app is less than a quarter of the size of Tinder in terms of the number of payers. And that payer count drops off precipitously for the long tail of hundreds of dating apps out there. So that supports this idea that it's very hard to start a new dating app and get it to any sort of reasonable scale. So while there's competition, I think where the effects of that competition are perhaps most likely to be observed would be in the usage, behavior, and app download choices of younger users. People tend to age out of using the dating apps. And look, maybe it's less of an age thing and more of a life phase thing that's correlated with age such that people in their 30s tend to settle down and get married. But what we're seeing is this younger cohort of users, they age in and they become dating app users. One massive positive that is, in our view, overlooked is that the Gen Z group is a core part of Tinder. More than half of the Tinder users are Gen Z. If you think about other consumer-facing internet businesses, they'd kill for that privilege. And it really does speak to the utility-like status Tinder has achieved, whereby it's able to capture those younger cohorts as opposed to them flocking to other apps like you'd see in other parts of the consumer app landscape. It actually sets match up very well for user longevity within the app, provided that they can execute on the product front and dedicated to the needs and wants of Gen Z users. The millennials who were the initial adopters of Tinder a decade ago are phasing out of Tinder's prime 18 to 28-year-old demographic being replaced by Gen Zers. And that's this inexorable trend where by 2027, there will be no millennials left in that target cohort. Gen Z's approach dating differently to millennials. And so that's part of the payer weakness we're seeing. They're not getting as much out of the product. But BK and the team are cognizant of that, and they're looking to do a Gen Z-focused product refresh of the Tinder app, which is slated for Q4, which will aim to improve self-expression and inclusivity of Tinder for that Gen Z cohort. As it relates to Facebook, Facebook does have a dating product called Facebook Dating. And it's an interesting risk to think about. So Meta, they have a massive customer acquisition advantage. They've got over 3 billion daily active people across their properties. They have an enormous data advantage in what they know about users. They have best-in-class AI capabilities. So in theory, they should have a pretty good shot at cracking the dating market. When Facebook announced their push into online dating back in 2018 at the developer conference. Match stock plunged 20% in a day. But so far, it's really been a bit of a non-event and they've failed to get any real traction. Facebook dating, they've been around for five years and it's had no discernible impact on Match Group. And I think a big part of that problem for Facebook is the level of user distrust towards Facebook and how their data might be handled. And dating information is particularly sensitive. So that's worked against Facebook. Another thing I'd note is that Meta is probably going to do 130 billion in revenue. Match has roughly caught three and a half billion in revenue. So even if Facebook dating took a decent slice of the online dating market, it won't be enough to move the needle. They're also not monetizing directly via subscriptions, but rather ad revenue. So there's a question mark over the monetization implications of directing user engagement towards Meta's dating product rather than highly optimized ad properties, such as feed stories and increasingly reels. So dating just isn't a key focus for Meta. I don't think you should ever underestimate Mark Zuckerberg. And if you really did try to get a slice of that market, it's a risk to be mindful of. But so far, we really haven't seen any impact from Facebook dating.
0: Yes, the separation of church and state makes a lot of sense there. And the dynamics around utility to like nature that Match has adopted or built into is quite interesting. George, this has been an absolutely excellent conversation. I've learned a lot about a business that I have been somewhat distant from and been an outside observer. We close these down with the lessons that you can take away from a business and potentially apply elsewhere. So in your research of Match, is there some lesson that stood out that you think could be applied elsewhere in a form of pattern recognition?
1: One lesson I would bring up would be around narrative oscillation that occurs in stocks with the market having a tendency to extrapolate the recent past. And I think Match is a pretty salient example of that. And so if you look back at 2021, Match was a smid cap internet darling. And then in a pretty short period of time, it became very hated. And the stock had an 80% peak to trough drawdown. And so there's a tendency for the market to become very myopic and become fixated on current issues and then not give due credit to where the business is heading. And right now, Tinder does have some genuine issues that they're working through. And in the eyes of the market, this is overshadowing the amazing performance we're seeing at Hinge. But when you look to the future, Hinge is only going to become a bigger growth driver for Match as a whole. Just mathematically, when you account for the growth differential between Tinder and Hinge, in the next five years, Hinge could be contributing 70 to 80% of the incremental revenue dollars for Match overall. And as Hinge scales, the margin profile will also improve, which will underpin margin expansion for the group. So it really seems like the market isn't giving Hinge the credit it deserves. And so Match really has disappointed the market for a long time, and many investors who were previously enamored with the stock have scars. I think the longer a company disappoints investors, the longer it takes to rebuild that trust. And Match right now is very much a show me story where they will need to get some consistent runs on the board before we can see the narrative inflect towards there being more positive discourse on the stock.
0: Well, I completely agree with you in terms of the discourse and the strong opinions in terms of it going from being a darling to really a hated name with a very polarizing environment and reputation around it. And George, I appreciate you trying to break it down with a clean and unbiased framework. Certainly have done a lot of work on this name. So I appreciate all of that. And thank you for joining us on Business Breakdowns. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure.